Hola. Hello. How are you? Welcome back to Two Jane Dicks. Better late than ever. That's what I like to say. We're not exactly late yet. Yeah. Yeah. We're a day late on our recording schedule, but it's fine. It'll be fine. Per usual, because somebody wouldn't do the notes. Hasha, it took me a long time to figure out who we were going to do, and I'm still not satisfied with who I chose. Oh, that's upsetting. Well, it's just kind of, this is a unidentified, possibly maybe still alive serial killer just sat out there on these streets. What? Do you ever think, like, how many people have killed somebody and, like, you don't even know that you, like, possibly were coming in contact? And I'm not talking about, like, soldiers or, like, people that work for, like, the FBI or CIA. I'm talking about, like, people that have, like, in the in the shadows, killed somebody, stashed their body somewhere, and it's just never come to light. And you just be like walking by yeah. down an aisle next to them, picking out your fruit. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of. Or how many Ugh. people who have killed somebody been to jail for it and are now roaming free? Rehabilitation's possible. It is, it is, but it's still kind of like, ooh, mm. yeah, yeah. I don't like it. Anyways, we are going to talk about the the Freeway Phantom. And it is not to be confused with a very similar killer known as the Freeway Killer. I need to come up with some more original names. But I guess he's a Freeway Ghosty. I don't know. The Freeway Phantom kind of chose his own name. Because he had wrote a letter. Sort of. So, I mean, so maybe these people just need to be more creative with their serial killer names. Yeah, like when you come up with like a shitty nickname and then you try and pass it off and be like, everybody called me that. Nobody called you that. No. Joe. Yeah. Mm. So anyways, the freeway phantom is a media epithet for an unidentified serial killer who was active in Washington, D.C. from April 70. from April 1971 through September 1972 and still remains unidentified to this day. What better place in D.C.? Because that's a pretty, like, densely populated area. Especially with, like, people coming in and out of the city. Oh, yeah. It's like... For work and everything. Yeah. Prime location. Location is everything. Location, location, location. So, the Freeway Phantom case has seen a myriad of investigators and garnered much interest over the years. Numerous investigative tips came from the general public by a telephone hotline operated by the Metro... I cannot talk today. (laughs) Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia. And information also came by way of the mail. All these leads were investigated to their logical conclusion... Some leads were easily proven not to be viable, while others required substantial investigation. The investigation was conducted by a law enforcement task force that included detectives from the MPDC Homicide and Sex Squads, investigators from Prince George's County and Montgomery County, Maryland, Maryland State Police, and the FBI. I just all of a sudden, like, when you said the MPDC homicide and sex squads, I just heard the law and order. Doo-doo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <In my head. laughs> oh, my God. So, 
Common practice at the time was that case files in NPDC detective divisions were retained by the detectives assigned to the case. As a result, the freeway fan case files are now incomplete as some have been discarded entirely and others are incomplete with pages or articles of evidence having been lost along with their associated notes and all the primary or task force investigators have either long retired or are deceased. So, excellent record keeping NPDC. Hell yeah. Ding. Which is probably the case for so many other things from the 60s, 70s I believe it. era. Yeah. So, with current evidence and any information of the case from when it happened, no leads produce sufficient evidence for prosecution. Obviously, he's never been identified. Um, this case, which has been closed and opened a number of times over its history, is currently open as a cold case in the MPDC Homicide Division. And a reward of $150,000 remains on the table as well. Do you still get the money if you, like, figure out who it is, but they did? Like, do they still give you the reward? I don't know. I've kind of wondered that. I've never solved a, a murder before. I don't know that I'd be... It'd be really cool to be able to say, yeah, bitches, I'm gonna fucking solve this thing. Just a normal pedestrian out here. I mean, yeah, it'd be cool, but I sucked at, like, Clue, so... I think you'd have to have, like, a vision board to do it, though. Ooh, like Charlie Day off of It's Always Sunny. Mm hmm. <sighs> yeah. It's possible. So, unfortunately, there wasn't like a whole lot of information, being as, you know, one, record keeping wasn't that great. And, uh, and two, we have no idea who he is. That's so, too. it's not like we can go into our regular, like, early life backstory. Here's some questionable choices and behaviors that may have led to us knowing that he was going to be a serial killer. Yeah. Eh. There's none of that. All you get to know is he's unidentified. The case is open as a cold case. And we will talk about the murders and some possible suspects. Let's go. So, the first murder that we know of is Carol Denise Spinks. On the evening of April 25th, 1971, 13-year-old Spinks from the southeast side of D.C. was sent by an older sister to buy groceries at a 7-Eleven located a half a mile away from her home, just across the border in Maryland. On her way home from the store, Spinks was abducted, and her body was found six days later at 2.46 p.m. behind St. Elizabeth's Hospital on a grassy embankment next to the northbound lane of I-295, about 1,500 feet south of Suitland Parkway. Examination revealed she had been both physically and sexually assaulted and strangled, was dressed but missing her shoes, and had only been killed a few days previously. What if it was like... Our first episode, Bitter Creek Betty. What if it was homie in his truck? Because they were always missing some like shoes or something. They were. <sighs> I'm telling you though, like to be like a truck driver or somebody who frequents like some sort of highway, you just be leaving bodies all over the place. It's hard to tell how long it would take for it all to catch up to you. So the next uh, victim was Darlene Denise Johnson, and on July 8, 1971, Johnson, who was 16 at the time from Congress Heights, was abducted while en route to her summer job at Oxon Hill Recreation Center. 
One witness reported having seen Johnson in an old black car driven by an African-American male shortly after her abduction. 11 days later, her body was located only 15 feet from where Spinks had been found, even though police had been notified of the location of the corpse nearly a week earlier by an anonymous caller who had details only her killer could have known. What? So, her body was found 11 days later, but police were notified like a week. So, there was like four extra days she just laid there? Yeah. And if if they knew her body was there, why didn't anybody go and <sighs> check? NPDC. Okay. So, by that time, Johnson's body, again, she was dressed as well, but didn't have her shoes, was far too decomposed to determine the cause of her death or if she had been sexually assaulted, but law enforcement was able to find evidence of strangulation. Terrible. But, I mean, so we got a, a little trend here. Same, same freeway. Dressed, same, same missing drop. shoes. Yeah. I mean, like, she was only, like, five feet away from her. Who was the, who was, the, who did we do? Five that feet. There's not, that's, that's three yards. There's 12 inches in a how am I doing my conversion? Fifteen feet? I'm an idiot. Anyways, five yards, not three. Can't do conversion. Carry on. What was your thought? <laughs> who uh, who did we cover that took shoes? That was his trophy. Was shoes? Calendar? When a calendar? Was it calendar? Could have been him, too, though. It was a shoe fetish killer. But was he from D.C., though? I don't think he was from D.C. He was in the, like, Tennessee area, I think. Hmm. No, I think it was Tommy Lynn Smith. No, it was Jerry Brutus. Jerry Brutus. Yeah. Anyways. I kind of... Carry on. Carrying on. The next murder we have is of Brenda Faye Crockett. On July 27th, 1971, 10-year-old Crockett from the northwest side of D.C. failed to return home after having been sent to the store by her mother. Uh, she's only 10. Oh, it was back in the 70s. That was a pretty normal thing no, to do. Just a, she's a 10-year-old that died. Okay, well, yeah. Not that she's been sent to the store, but my parents would never send me to the store at 10. True. So about two hours later, around 9.20 p.m., the Crockett's phone rang and was answered by her seven-year-old sister, who had waited at home while her family searched the neighborhood. Crockett was on the other line crying, and she said to her sister, quote, A white man picked me up, and I'm heading home in a cab, end quote. Adding that she believed she was in Virginia before abruptly saying bye and hanging up. A short time later, the phone rang again and was this time answered by the stepfather of Crockett. It was Crockett again, and she merely repeated what she'd said in the last telephone call, adding, quote, Did my mother see me? End quote, and indicating she was alone in a house with a white male. Her stepfather asked her to have the man come to the phone. Heavy footsteps were heard in the background, and Crockett said, I'll see you, and hung up. Oh, God. Chill bumps. Authorities quickly concluded that Crockley likely called her home at 
the behest of the killer who fed her inaccurate information in order to buy the necessary time to perpetrate the crime and to hamper the investigation. At 5.50 a.m. the next day, a hitchhiker discovered Crockett's shoeless body in a in a conspicuous location on U.S. Route 50 near the Baltimore-Washington Parkway in Prince George's County, Maryland. She had been raped and strangled, and a scarf was knotted around her neck. Oh my god, that makes me physically sick. So, yeah. It's a lot for a 10-year-old, but why Why the change? Why have, why have the victim call their own family? What was... Well, I mean... He's evolving. I don't, I don't know. Getting bolder, he's already gotten away with two. Let's let's try and add a little bit more shock factor to it. Ugh. But he definitely has that that trend of stealing shoes, rape, strangle. And <sighs> you would give me this next one, okay? Nino Misha, yeah. Nino Misha. Nino Misha. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nino Moshia Yates uh, was 12 year old. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I just had a mini stroke. Nino Moshia. Yates, who was 12 years old, was walking home around 7 p.m. from a Safeway store in Northeast on October 1st, 1971, when she was kidnapped, raped, and strangled. Uh, again, she's only 12. Her body was found within three hours of her abduction just off the shoulder of Pennsylvania Avenue in Prince George's County, Maryland. What is wrong with me? Uh just off the shoulder of Pennsylvania Avenue in Prince George's County, Maryland. As with the other cases, her shoes were missing and unidentified green fibers would also be found on her clothing. A witness apparently saw her getting into a blue Volkswagen and although investigated, the lead led nowhere. Oh, the lead led nowhere. It's not funny. <coughs> Sorry. It was after this murder that the Freeway Phantom moniker was first used in a Daily News article describing the murders. Because at this point, four bodies have piled up. Yep, so now he's he's getting some public attention. Oh, which is probably, you know, maybe what he wanted. I know that's a thing that serial killers enjoy. Die inside. And they're all, I mean, all of these victims are quite young. 12, oh. 10. The oldest was 13. 16. 13. Oh, was it? Mm-hmm. <sighs> so then we have Brenda Denise Woodard. After having dinner with a high school classmate on November 15, 1971, Woodard, who was 18 at the time from Baltimore, boarded a city bus around 11.30 p.m. to return to her Maryland Avenue home. Approximately six hours later, a police officer discovered her body, which had been stabbed multiple times and strangled in a grassy area near Prince George's County Hospital along an excess ramp to Route 202 from the Baltimore-Washington Parkway. Unlike the other victims, she was still wearing her shoes and a coat had been placed over her chest. One of its pockets contained a note from the killer, which read, this is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. Freeway Phantom. Based on handwriting samples, authorities 
surmised that the note, written on paper, cut from the victim's school notebook, had been dictated to and handwritten by Woodard. They also speculated that, given the absence of indication of duress in the writing, apart from evidence of dysgraphia, she may have known her kidnapper. Time out. Dysgraphia? Mm-hmm. This probably has something to do with... It is a deficiency in the ability to write, primarily handwriting, but also coherence. So it was just a little... It probably had to do with um, the spelling errors. Oh, yeah. We should And things know. like that. There are a lot of spelling errors. There's capitalized letters where it shouldn't be. There's... It's not insensitivity, it's insensitivity. Yeah, so it's, there is, so that's what dysgraphia means. So it's like, it's all about like being able to read uh, the handwriting, it's spelled correctly, it's legible, that kind of thing. Huh. Yeah, because there's like. And I mean, that's also different too because he started stabbing. Yep, he got, he got a little bit bolder. Right. And he left her shoes. Yeah, and he left her shoes. But left a note. note. Yeah. But it was handwritten by her. Hmm. So, the last victim was Diane Denise Williams, and she was claimed almost a year later on September 5th, 1972. She was a 17-year-old Bellu High School senior, and Williams cooked dinner for her family and then visited her boyfriend's house. She was last seen boarding a bus at 11.20 p.m. near his house. A few hours later, her strangled body was discovered dumped alongside I-295 just south of the district line. As with the other victims, her shoes were missing, but no signs of sexual assault were found, although traces of semen, assumed to be from the boyfriend, were found. Again, it's 1972. They probably did not have the technology there to test any of that. Probably not. Oh, gosh. So now she's the oldest. Uh, A 17-year-old. Oh, my God. So, that's all the victims we know of. Right. It's very possible there could have been God knows how many others. Ugh. I don't want to think about them. So, now we're going to jump in to possible suspects. And suspect numero uno is the Green Vega Rapist, which sounds like something that would be in Pulp Fiction. Anyways... Oh, that's why I'm thinking of that. You know, have you seen Pulp Fiction? Yeah. Okay. So, you know the part where Emma Thurman and uh, John Travolta go to the, see the twist? Mm-hmm. She's like, obviously, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. So, among those individuals considered suspects were members of a gang known as the Green Vega Rapists. Members of this gang were collectively responsible for numerous Washington, D.C. and surrounding Maryland vicinity rapes and abductions that occurred near the Washington Beltway. Logical investigation and intimate knowledge of the modus operandi of the Green Vega Gang brought them to the forefront. The Green Vega Gang members were individually interviewed by MPDC homicide detectives Thickling, Irving, and Richardson at Lorton Prison in Virginia, where the gang members were serving sentences in conjunction with the successful prosecutions of those crimes in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. That's a mouthful. During these interviews, one gang member initially implicated another gang member, who he said told him he was involved and gave information as to one of the Beltway homicides. This particular inmate was also serving a sentence at Lorton Prison from the... 
serving a sentence at Lorton Prison for the Green Vega convictions. The inmate being interviewed stipulated that he would provide the information only if he could remain unidentified, which was agreed upon. He identified the man who gave him the information, the date and location of the crime, and the signature detail which was not provided to the public, but which was known only to the perpetrator and to detectives. That signature information was correct. The inmate who provided information said he was not involved in the homicide and provided an alibi which was found to be verifiable. Now, how can they verify all this, but then they can't do like simple two-step footwork to like keep piles in order anyways yeah it's amazing isn't it during this period an election was being held in maryland and one of the candidates publicly announced to the press that a break had occurred in the freeway phantom investigation and provided that an inmate at lorton prison had given that information after that announcement, the inmate who provided that information declined any further interviews and denied that he had ever provided any information. You just screwed the pooch. Oh, absolutely. And like election or not, you you could have gotten somebody killed. Yeah. Dumb. Dumb. Oh, God, I can't. And I mean, what if it was that person? I mean, yeah. And then they scot free. Yeah. Just because of some dummy announcing something. A dumbass politician. Yeah. Oh my god. Stressing me out. Another possible suspect was Edward Sullivan and Tommy Simmons. Sullivan and Simmons were two ex-cops. They were arrested for the murder of Angela Denise Barnes. Barnes was 14 at the time and was at one point thought to be a victim of the serial killings. Authorities later determined that Barnes was not a victim of that freeway phantom and resumed their investigation on the murders. But here's my thing. Just because you had one random, why wouldn't you continue looking into both Sullivan and Simmons? Because, you know, every great now and then you find that serial killer who just, like, can't find somebody. They gotta scratch that little itch, so they go off their M.O.P. Yeah. So, I mean... It doesn't make sense. Um, So the last suspect we're going to jump into is Robert Askins. Um, In March 1977, a 58-year-old computer technician, Robert Elwood Askins, was charged with abduct... Was charged with abduct... Oh, my God. (laughs) Was charged with abducting and raping a 24-year-old woman inside his Washington, D.C. home. Homicide detective Lloyd Davis proceeded to question Askins and learned that he had been charged with murder on several previous occasions. What do you mean charged with murder on several previous occasions and he's living his life as a computer technician? Right? Uh, back to what I said. How many? Like, how scary is it that there are people out there that just kill people? So, on December 28, 1938, Askins, then 19 years old, and a student and member of the science club at Minor Teachers College, served cyanide-laced whiskey to five prostitutes at a brothel, resulting in the death of 31-year-old Ruth McDonald. What in the hell? Hell yeah, right? Just... Cyanide-laced whiskey. Okay, to five prostitutes, kill them one. Wow. What the hell? Um, on December 30th, only two days later, he stabbed to death another prostitute, 26-year-old Elizabeth Johnson, at the same location. What? He's got a thing for killing prostitutes. He's killing sex workers out here. Like, no. Okay. 
Upon his arrest, Askins declared to police that he was a quote-unquote woman hater and was placed under mental observation at Washington, D.C.'s Gallinger Hospital. Ha- oh <laughs> at Washington, D.C.'s Gallinger Hospital. While there, he broke free of his restraints and assaulted three orderlies with a chair before being subdued. During his trial, it was revealed that he'd been a police informant aiding law enforcement in the arrest of prostitutes. <laughs> so now he's just killing them all. In April 1939, Askins was found criminally insane and committed to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. So that explains why he was charged with murder on several previous occasions and was just still out there doing whatever. And it's because he was he was an informant. That's insanity, though. But he's he's probably he just, just be running around being like a hitman. Well, he maybe he thought he was he was doing the world some. Some good oh, doing some cyanide laced whiskey and stabbing people. Yeah. So five months after being released from St. Elizabeth's Hospital in April of 1952, Askins strangled 42 year old Laura Cook to death. He was indicted for this murder in 1954, accused of several other assaults of similar circumstance, and retried. For the 1938 murder, it having been determined that he was indeed sane upon committing the act. Double jeopardy. Can't do that now. Nope. Despite claiming he intended the cyanide for himself, planning suicide, he was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 20 years to life. This conviction was overturned in 1958. After the 1978 rape charge, Askins' home was searched by police in connection with the freeway phantom murders. Court documents were found in a desk drawer in which a judge had used the word tantamount, which, if you remember, is from his notes. From his, yeah, Woodard. Which is an uncommon word that had appeared in the note dictated by the killer of Brenda Woodard. And I had to look up, we had to look up what that word is. I didn't think it was a real word. Yeah, I've heard, like, panam... Paramount. I I don't know. I feel like I'd heard tantamount, but it's not a commonly used word. That's like what you reach for when like you're trying to type an essay and you're like digging through a thesaurus to make yourself seem smarter. Oh yeah. So furthermore, colleagues at the National Science Foundation, where Askins was employed, reported that tantamount was a word that frequently cropped up in his speech. Huh. A search warrant was eventually obtained, and investigators dug through Askins' backyard. No physical evidence was obtained, and Askins was not charged in connection with the Freeway Phantom killings. Askins died at the Federal Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland on April 30th, 2010, at the age of 91. Holy, Holy shit. shit, yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm telling you. These, these people will outlive us all. I will slip, getting out of my shower hit my head on my vanity, and be dead instantly. These people will outlive us all. Oh, yeah. They could, like, fall down five flights of stairs and then jump from the third story landing on a trash can or a car and still be all right. So, Askins remained in prison for two D.C. area abductions and rapes in the mid-70s and had been contacted by both Davis and Press regarding the Freeway Phantom slangs. He denied any role in them, adding that he did not have, quote, the depravity of mind required to commit any of the crimes, end quote. Yeah, he out here killing prostitutes. He out here poisoning and stabbing prostitutes, but 
it's too far out of reach to say that he would rape a 10-year-old child or stab a 12-year-old girl or something. I mean, I will say his his youngest person that he killed was was 19, but I would not put it past somebody if you're a woman hater or whatever to go. Right. And kill a 10-year-old. I just don't understand. So. Ugh. I think if anybody... Mm, he was probably, like, someone I would point the finger more to than the other possible suspects. Or I the mean, maybe rapists. if they had... Yeah, I was gonna say, if the, if the police hadn't shot themselves, well, that politician hadn't shot the police in the foot... I feel like if he was able to give him for, you know, information that only the perpetrator would know, that was a valuable lead that should have been predicted at all costs, and clearly it wasn't. No. So. Any hoozle, y'all, uh, keep your eyes peeled. Be aware of your surroundings. And stay safe. Don't die. Bye. Later.